Good morning and greetings in Christ's name to each one of you. It's good to see our house well filled as we see the brotherhood gathered together to commemorate the communion service and what the Lord has done for each one of us. And I trust that we are here with joyful hearts as we consider what Christ has done for us. And yet, as, as we consider what he went through, it also brings uh, maybe a feeling of that sorrow that he experienced. If you were here last Sunday and remember the message, looking at the majesty of God, and Matt left a, a few comments um, indicating a, a possible platform for this Sunday, and, and I went ahead and took it. Um, and I, I will just be up front with you right away as I was where I had been thinking about going and some of the notes I had from earlier, um, from a message earlier. I will be actually kind of going over a little bit of uh, on some of the passages that Brother Matt shared on last Sunday. And uh, so I hope you um, are okay with a little bit of that. So this morning, um, I want to start out in Hebrews chapter 12. So last Sunday, there was a little bit of mention uh, made looking at about God coming down on Mount Sinai and uh, just all that took place there as the glory of God descended and he showed himself there and his power and majesty to, to Moses and to the children of Israel. And in Hebrews 12, Uh, it, it refers to that, and it says in verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire." This morning, we are not come to that physical place of Mount Sinai where the presence of God brought terror 
Rather, we are come to the spiritual city of God, the church, Mount Zion. Christ is now the mediator, no longer the man Moses as it was to the children of Israel and he passed on. As Brother Matt read there a few minutes ago about the priests, their time was limited through life and death. But now Christ is coming between the majestic and holy and awesome God and man. And you know, there's a continued terror this morning to those who do not know God, to those who turn against him. But as children cleansed with the blood of Christ, we are called to come to God with reverence and a godly fear. And the final verse there in chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. And man will either find that consuming fire to consume himself, which brings terror, or to consume his sin. And there's a big difference there. That fire of cleansing of sin, which we find through the blood of Jesus Christ. The question last Sunday, how can we come before our God of majesty? We're going to turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. God, the creator of all good, all perfection, everything beautiful, placed man in an environment that he had bestowed with, with all good things for man, with his best for man. A peaceful place, a lovely place of communion with God. But in Genesis chapter 2, I don't think we'll take the time to read these verses. We know them well. Verses 15 through 17. As he put them in that environment, he also gave them the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just a simple command. Then as we move into chapter 3, we have the account of the fall of man, which we, we know well there as well. We have the serpent coming and beguiling Eve, and she offers the fruit also to Adam. And the guilt, the knowledge of evil that that brought upon them. And as God comes and he talks with them, with Adam and Eve, there is the curse that is placed on Satan and also the curse that was placed on the man and the woman. But also, even amidst that, there was the promise that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would bruise the head of Satan, would defeat Satan. There is that first messianic prophecy. The promise of a restored relationship with God and man 
Then the final verses of chapter 3 speak of the removal of man from the garden, from that place of perfect peace and tranquility and beauty, driven to the weeds, the toil of life. And if Adam and Eve looked back as they left that garden, they saw that flaming sword. And then as we go through the book of Genesis, as we go through the Bible, but um, I specifically here, just paging through the page headings here in, in my Thompson Chain Reference Bible, um, we see the one... There says the wickedness of man, and then it goes to Noah and the ark and, and all of, of Noah's life there. And then, going back a little bit, there's the building of the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the tongues. And um, then Abraham leaving Haran, um, kind of a bright spot, a man here who's leaving his, his country, his kindred. And, and the, the evil, the gods that were worshipped there. But then there's Abraham and Lot and their separation. Just kind of a, a continued vein of, of what was brought on man by, by the fall. The battle of the kings. Another bright spot, Canaan, is again promised. Back a few pages, the destruction of Sodom. And I'm sure your Bibles say different things. Some of yours probably. Abraham denies his wife. There where he, he took the lesser path. Another bright spot, Abraham offering Isaac a picture of God giving his only son. And then death, death of Sarah. Death of Abraham, and, and we could just go on through here. We get into Joseph and just see the, the things that Joseph faced. And we recognize we are not in a perfect world anymore. We're not in an Eden. We're far from it. Man was in desperate need of a Redeemer. I think each one of us here identifies with that, that need of a Redeemer. Next, I just, uh, I know this was last Sunday as well, but going, into, going over to Isaiah chapter 6, and the first, I think the first four verses, Brother Matt led, read last Sunday, of where... Isaiah had that vision of, of the, um, the Lord and what took place there, the heavenly beings. And in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was recognizing his own sinfulness, his own need 
that as he was, he was not worthy to cry out as the seraphims to the, the holiness and the majesty of God. It says in verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And we go on there, from there, seeing that then God could use Isaiah, the call of Isaiah to go and to use his mouth for the service of God. Looking back at, at uh, well, just here in, in Isaiah 6, we see the work of the seraphims, the heavenly beings, coming and cleansing the mouth, the lips of Isaiah. Now, there was also mention made of those cherubims last Sunday in Genesis 3. And if, Eden, if Adam and Eve looked back as they left Eden, they not only saw the flaming sword, but they also saw the cherubims, which were standing outside the, the garden there. The cherubims, to me, signify the mercy of God on Adam and Eve. There was the flaming sword there to keep them out of the garden, to keep them from eating from the tree of life and remaining in their sinful state forever. But there were the cherubims as well. Exodus 25, 22 says, this is speaking of, should have looked, uh, it's either the ark or the mercy seat there. It says, and there will I meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. God promised to come and meet with them, with uh, Moses, I believe it was, from above the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there were the cherubims, the figures of the cherubims that were, were made out of beaten gold. I believe they were solid gold, beaten out as cherubims. And they signify communion. Communion between God and man. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God of mercy. He was not going to leave man in an utterly lost and hopeless state, but he had a plan. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about the animal sacrifices. And I have not studied into the sacrifices a lot. But those sacrifices did not cleanse from sin. They merely covered sin. And there needed to be the, 
the yearly, the ongoing sacrifices. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4 says, But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. There was only a covering, not a cleansing. The law was good, but it was a foreshadow of something to come, a foreshadow of something better, that foreshadow of Christ and his reign. We find then that the Almighty, the King of creation, the majestic God, did what, humanly speaking, is the unthinkable. He sent his only son to shed his blood to bring man back to himself. His only son, his pure, spotless son, who had, who had, who had never sinned. He knew no sin. He was one with God himself. He was one in the glories of God, with God. He sent him down to shed his blood. And in that shedding of Christ's blood, we find the mercy of God. As we ponder the sufferings of Christ, we are left to muse on the inequity of what took place there. When I think of the cross, the song here, long, long ago in a faraway place, rough, rugged timbers were raised to the sky. There hung a man suspended in space, and though he was blameless, they left him to die. Just to think of the cross moves me now the nails in his hands, his bleeding brow. To think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. I am free. He put an end to my guilt and despair, turned bitter hating to sweet peace and love. Even the men that put him up there were offered forgiveness and life from above. And again, the chorus, just to think of the cross moves me now. The nails in his hands, his bleeding brow. To think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. I am free. This morning, I want to invite you to the book of Matthew. To look at that, to look at the sufferings of Christ, I didn't go into detail studying from the Sunday school lesson, but for those of you who may have continued with the Sunday school lesson, um, this, this is the account that was for this week's lesson. looking at a few verses probably on either side of what was for the lesson but 
in, in Matthew 27, 11, we have Jesus standing before Pilate. And we don't find these words here, I don't believe, in Matthew, but in John, John 19, Pilate spoke the words, I find no fault in him. There was no fault in him. It should have been me. In continuing and just not reading here, but Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26, talks about Barabbas. And the governor uh, was accustomed to releasing a prisoner to them. At, at the feast, at the Passover. And there was the prisoner Barabbas, who was a notable uh, prisoner. Or he was, he was known. He was in there for a reason. And Pilate asked them, Do you want me to release Barabbas? Or shall I release Jesus? I think in Pilate's mind it was a no-brainer. Release Jesus. He had done nothing wrong. Barabbas, they wanted Barabbas there in prison. Mark and Luke say that Barabbas was a murderer. John says a robber. But the cry of the people was to release Barabbas. To release the criminal. And to, to put to death. The innocent. In that case, it should have been Barabbas. But he was granted freedom by the death of Christ. And then, next couple verses there, we read of the mocking, of the, the spitting, and the hitting. Jesus didn't deserve it. He took my place. The place that I deserved. The place that all of mankind deserve. Let's go ahead and read from, uh, from verse 31. And after that they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, 
one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. We just see that continued mocking as he's there on the cross, suffering. Suffering in in agony. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And truly, the world was in a state of darkness. It seems all of creation was feeling the darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I believe that God was still there. But Jesus was feeling the weight and the loneliness and his need to depend on his Father in this moment, in this hour. Some of them that stood there When they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Notice that he yielded up the ghost. And in other accounts, we would read that his life had departed from him before the others who were crucified with him. It was he died sooner than was expected. He gave his life when he had faced the suffering that he was called to face. He gave his life. And behold, The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, And those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea, named Joseph, 
who also himself was Jesus' disciple, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. And the final part of the chapter is about the sealing of the tomb to prove that Jesus was dead, that his body would not be stolen. The holy God was satisfied. As we look at the events there in Jesus' death, verse 51, verse verse 50, Jesus cried with a loud voice. In one of the Gospels, it says that he cried out, It is finished. And I believe that loud voice held a note of triumph. Because God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. The one-time sacrifice for the cleansing of men's sins. The event of the veil of the temple being rent from the top to the bottom. Being torn open so that we can come to God. Through the mediator, Jesus Christ, no longer through the priest, but that we ourselves can come to God. And, and the, the earthquake, the rocks being rent, the graves being opened, and those resurrections there then, I believe is testimony to, to just the greatness of what had happened in this moment of Jesus' death. It should have been me, but instead, I am free. Jesus said to the thief on the cross there, he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. We would read that in Luke 23, 43. That thief died a free man. And there again, the veil being rent. Yes, we are made worthy to come to the holiest to God himself. The centurion acknowledging that truly this was the Son of God and the women ministering, they hadn't given up on Jesus. They still trusted in Jesus, even to his death. I don't think they fully recognized at this point what had taken place, but their faith was strong in him. And also Joseph, And we read elsewhere of Nicodemus coming and ministering to Christ in his death. It should have been me. Today we are called to meet Jesus at the cross. To take up our cross for Christ. To be crucified with Christ. And in him to find life. I was thinking of a song this morning. 
Um, it's 859 in the the um, songbook, the hymnal, if you want to look at it. And if, one of the song, if the song leader wants to lead it later, that's fine. Um, there is a fountain filled with blood. <clears throat> I'm just going to read it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners washing in that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners washing in that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And may I there, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And may I there, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Thou dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. We read about the sacrifices earlier. The continual sacrifices needing to be made to continue to cover the sins. But the precious blood of of Christ washes them away. Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. Are saved to sin no more. Are saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. And we are still, that this is still true for us today. But I look at the last verse. It's looking to the future. And when this feeble, faltering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Communion looks back on what Christ has done for us. In fact, um, the Passover was a foreshadow of Christ giving his life on the cross. The communion service looks back on what Christ has done and what he, what's not only past, but it's present. It's true for us today. But it also looks forward to eternity when we are gathered together for the marriage supper of the Lamb, gathered around his throne, singing in a sweeter, nobler song of salvation and what Christ has done for us. This morning, as we partake of the emblems, it is identifying in a tangible way with what Christ has done for us. And it shows what we've chosen to do with what he's done for us. And this morning, it's a gratitude as we partake of the emblems, a gratitude to Christ for what he's done for us of giving himself, himself, 
a sacrifice in place of what I deserved in bringing us to God the Father. I'm going to invite you to kneel with me for prayer.